Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother or sister who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let them not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing more to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother or sister. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of God. This is the last week of our well-being series, and we're going to finish by looking at vocational well-being, or well-being at work, if you like. Vocational well-being. Now, I've only had five jobs. I'm now a teaching pastor. I've done that for about 12 or 13 years. And before that, I was a kids and youth worker. And before that, I was a management consultant up in the West End, uh, working with companies who were being bought and sold. And before that, I spent a summer working in marketing for Procter & Gamble. Big make, they make shampoo and lots of other things. And before that, I was a general sort of dog's body assistant for my dad's company. And I did envelope stuffing and typing and all kinds of odds and sods like that. So for the vast majority of people watching this, I don't really have any wisdom or insight at all on how to do your job more effectively. I've got no idea how to be a really great nurse or a really great builder or a really great lawyer or cleaner or whatever it might be. But fortunately for me and fortunately for you, that's not ultimately where vocational well-being is actually found. Ultimately, vocational well-being is not found simply in being exceptionally competent at a job you can be very inexperienced and new at a job and yet find well-being and joy and peace in it. And we all know people like this. You are, it's also possible to be very, very competent at a job and yet find no peace or true well-being at all in that job. So this message is not going to be about how to be better at your job. It's going to be more about how to be at your job better. Or more accurately, it's going to be more about how to be at work better. I, the word job, the problem there is that it implies you're paid for it. And I would say probably half of us or more are at the moment not being paid for the most important work we do. Because if you add up all the people in this church who are children or students or parents or carers or retirees, all of us, as we'll see, are called to work. But actually an awful lot of us aren't paid or hardly paid at all for what we're doing. But at root, vocational well-being or well-being at work, being at work better, is about moving with rather than against God's created purpose in humans having work to do. 
right? God, when he designed the world, as we'll see, even before there was a fall, God said, human beings, I want you to work. I want you to do these things. I want you to labor fruitfully and productively for the common good. And the way we find vocational well-being is by finding out God's purpose for human work and then moving with rather than against that purpose. Like in woodwork, cutting with the grain of the wood, saying, I, I could cut against this, but if I cut with it, the whole cut will be much smoother and easier. If I, I'm a butcher and I get out my big meat cleaver and I'm, I'm trying to slice with the sinew and the muscle of the meat rather than against it and make a mess of it, I want to find out where the natural seam is and then go with it. A more sort of digital example that we might be more familiar with. When you, if you ever found one of these and you try and coil one of these, they always say, don't they, you have to find the natural curve of the coil and try and move with the natural curve rather than against it. When you do, it all looks really nice and neat. But if you try and curve it the wrong rhythm or you do it around your elbow or something, that's awful. And every, you know, sound technicians everywhere freak out when you do that because you're not finding the natural curve of where the coil wants to go. And it's something of that, I think, in our pursuit of well-being at work. What we do is we look to see how has God designed human work to function and humans to flourish within it? And how can I move with rather than against that purpose? And in this passage we've just read, actually following the pattern that we find right the way back at the start of the Bible in Genesis 1 to 3, we learn three vital things about what work is for God and why God has created it for us. We learn that work is universal, as it's for everybody. Work is good and work is hard. Work is universal, work is good and work is hard. And each of those statements actually challenges a very prominent myth or misunderstanding or even lie in our culture. And understanding each of these three things and the lie that they expose is actually very important for us in pursuing vocational well-being or being at work better. The first one is that work is universal. It is for everybody. It's not just for people with particular skills or particular competencies or responsibilities or jobs or levels of salary. All of us are called to work. And that actually goes all the way back to the garden. And Genesis chapter 1, very first chapter of the Bible, human beings are created in the image of God and immediately given work to do. And so God blesses them and he said, go forth, multiply, fill, subdue, have dominion, right? Our, that's work. That involves a lot of effort. You have to move, you have to travel, you have to raise families, you have to subdue the earth, you have to govern it wisely and steward it and look after it for the benefit of creation and human beings. You're called to work, right? Before there's a fall, before there's sin, before there's any problem to solve, God says, go and work. Verse six in the passage we've just read, 2 Thessalonians 3. Now we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother or sister who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Notice how universal that perspective is. Any brother or sister who isn't working. He does it again in verse 10. If anyone isn't willing to work, let them not ease. Not just people who have paid jobs, anyone. Verse 14, if anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them so that they might be ashamed. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Work is universal for Paul. Obviously, healthcare permitting, right? There's seasons of life where we may find ourselves physically incapable of doing productive labor for other people. I'm not talking about that. That's fine. 
But assuming that we are able-bodied and mentally able to do it, we have been commissioned as humans, not just employees, humans, to work in the world and to do productive labour for the common good. And Paul says that's so universal that if you opt out of it, that's a reason for church discipline. Right? He's saying literally to the community, if there's an idle person, you warn them. If they don't listen to you, you need to have nothing to do with them. And then warn them, if you want to be part of this church, you need to work. Right? Otherwise, you, ultimately, you don't have grounds to say, I demand to be able to eat. That doesn't mean, as I've already said, that doesn't mean we all have to be paid for our work. In fact, as I said, only around half of us are. And uh, in fact, much of our most important work is unpaid. Even those of us who do have jobs, probably the most important responsibility I have before God is that of being a parent. And that's often harder work than the work I get paid to do. So it's not necessarily that I'm not talking about money here, but I'm saying that work, using our strength and our ability and our faculties and our time and our resources, putting them to work productively for the common good and the flourishing of other people, that's something God has commanded everyone to do, whether they're paid or not. And by the way, if you don't believe me that a lot of the hardest work is unpaid, why don't you go up sometime and approach a mum who's at home with two toddlers and say, oh, so do you work? Because the reaction you might find might amuse you or surprise you or horrify you, depending on how fiery they are about it. Because, I mean, people used to say that to, to Rachel. I say, oh, right, so do you work? And you think, ah, I'm probably working harder than you. You're sitting in an office, I'm doing this. It, you see what I mean? Work is not necessarily about being paid. And my parents are at the opposite end of their life, I suppose you'd say. I mean, they're just entering their 70s. But they would say the same, actually. That, they'd often say that they now work harder. They get more done in a week in some ways now, officially retired, but with volunteering and childcare and helping other people and pro bono work. My dad was a lawyer, so they does some of that for a voluntary basis. And bundle all of those things together, they might actually do more work now than they sometimes did when they were being paid to work. So work... Biblically understood does not mean hours that the market rewards with a particular salary. That's only in the last two or three centuries anyone would have thought that's what work meant. Because salary is even a pretty new thing, or wages. That's, even that, that's not always how people have been paid. Work is productive labour that serves the common good. And it's universal. We're all called to it. And that conviction of the universality of work that Paul has in this text and that goes right back to Genesis 1, that conviction conflicts with a powerful narrative in our culture or a powerful myth, you could, which is the narrative of retirement. Right? I'm going to might tread on a toe or two here, I'm not sure. Right? The narrative of retirement goes like this. You work for 40 or 50 years and then you stop working and you play golf instead and you have me time for the rest of your life, at least until your health holds up. Now, I think retirement's great. I, personally, I quite like the idea of being retired in the sense I understand it, if what we mean by that is transitioning from paid work to unpaid work. But it's not great. In fact, it's a dangerous narrative for us to believe. If what, if what we mean by retirement is, I've now done my time and paid my dues, and the next 20 or 30 years are about me or us doing what we want all the time and not thinking of others, and not using our labour for the common good. That is dangerous. That will actually not only be harmful to those around you, it'll also be harmful to you. And Paul's word for it in this passage, did you notice, is idleness. If anyone is not working, that person's walking in idleness. That's what he says. Now, it, you don't have to look very far to see idleness 
not only being accepted or tolerated, but even celebrated in our culture. And as appealing as it may sound, especially when you're tired and working hard, it is a myth, right? Now, this hit me like a ton of bricks a few years ago as I realised that Rachel and I were having a conversation and I, I basically had a total meltdown in a curry house. It's the worst sort of implosion in public I've ever had as I was hit through a conversation we were having by the reality that I was never going to be able to retire from being a carer for my kids, particularly my daughter. I was never, well, there was never going to be a day where the children in our home, where the children would all leave home and leave independent lives and I was going to be able to just do whatever I wanted. And it hit me like a ton of bricks and I it was one of, probably one of the two great emotional meltdowns of my adult life. I'll tell you about the other one another time. And it was awful. Probably my low point as a husband and as a father. And uh, in terms of, I didn't respond well at all either. And it just hit, it was as if it hit me. I, that myth has, I realised subsequently, that myth has so got into my thinking and my life that my ideal, my dream, is that one day I will no longer have to work for others. I can just be, do what I want. And Rachel was saying to me, that's never going to be true for you because our kids are not like that. And therefore, we are always going to be working in this area until we are physically unable to do it. And as I realized it, I found it very painful at the time. But in a way, I realize now how biblical and liberating that is when you realize that work is something you are given for your whole life. We do not find well-being in idleness, ultimately. That's the myth. Our work changes as we age, and those of us who are really quite old now obviously are able to produce less and maybe labour for fewer hours and have to be more physically guarded with our time and our energies. So the nature of our work may change, but the imperative to use what God has given us and steward it for the common good, including our energy, our mind, our abilities and our resources, doesn't disappear. Work is universal. The second thing we need to learn about God's purpose for work so that we can move with the grain of it is that work is good, right? Work is not just universal, it's good. And that clashes with another modern narrative, actually, which is the ideal or narrative of the weekend, right? So you've got retirement narrative, you've got the weekend narrative as well, right? Or the holiday, which is you basically work in order to be able to, you know, it's a drudge and boring and annoying and frustrating. This is the sort of thing you get on the radio every Friday afternoon, isn't it? Yeah! we finished our working week now it's time for the weekend and never mind a lot of us work weekends anyway but that's the narrative it's like you do that so that you can get enough money to be able to enjoy not working but that's i know i love holidays and i like weekends but that's nonsense right that is not a biblical picture of work work is good human beings have been designed by god to thrive through work, through productive labour for the common good. And that doesn't mean it's always enjoyable or stimulating. It might not be. But it means that ultimately it is a blessing and not a curse to be able to work. And that goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. You remember, work is universal, goes back to Genesis 1. Work is good, goes back to Genesis 2. Because humanity was given work to do before the fall. God puts the man in the garden to work it and keep it. And there's no sin. There's no evil in the world at this point. But there he is being given a charge to work because work is good for him and it's good for the paradise in which he has found himself in this garden. So work looks back to Genesis 2 and it actually looks forward to the new creation. You see, if you want to be convinced that work is good, you need to look at the scriptures and see what are people doing in the new creation when you see visions of the new creation. Are they just sitting around? 
or even just playing harps, even that's a form of work, I suppose, but sitting on clouds dreamily. No, they are often, they're labouring, they're working, but they're working in a world filled with nothing but abundance and joy. But they are putting their, what God's given them to work for the flourishing of themselves and everybody else. They are hammering their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Why do you do that? Not so that you can then have them sitting there in the shed. I've got plowshares and pruning hooks. No, because you're actually going to go and plow fields and you're going to prune vines and you're going to grow bread and wine and good things and celebrate and feast and you're going to use your time and your effort for the good of all humanity and all creation. But it's not going to exhaust you and it's not going to have any of the difficulties that work now is associated with. Look at verses 12 and 13 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in doing good. That's Paul's charge. Guys, work quietly, get on with it, earn your own living, don't grow weary, do what's good. And that's the challenge for all of us, but work is, it reflects a theology of work. The work is a good thing, not a curse. It's not something to be avoided at all costs or even something to be done as fast as you can so that you can get into just having time off or retiring or having holidays or weekends or whatever it is. Work is a God-given means of human flourishing for you, for your family and your friends and for others. And ultimately, that is because it is a participation in God's work, that God is a worker. Right? You see that in the beginning, God created and off we go and God is working and doing. And Jesus even says it, doesn't he? My father's always working and so I too am working. There's a diligence and a labour uh, that God is about a work in the world. He's continually doing it. We often say it here as a church, don't we? We're about a great work. It's because we know that our efforts are there to bring order in light of God's prior work that we now get to participate in. In his book, Faith Goes to Work, Robert Banks sketches the different kinds of work that God does and then gives examples of the kinds of work we do that echo God's work. He comes up with six categories. There is creative work, which God creates the world. Potters, weavers, smiths, designers, metal workers, carpenters, builders, architects, artists, musicians, novelists, actors, urban planners and others. That's creative work. He says there's redemptive work, which is the work of saving and reconciling. Counselors, pastors, mediators, peacemakers, evangelists. He says there is providential work, which many of us are involved in. That is using our gifts to provide for other people by stewarding the world in order to produce things that other people need to live and thrive. People who work in agriculture. Policy, public safety, retail, transport, repair, research, engineering, plumbing, caretaking, banking, cleaning, insurance, utilities. There is justice work. Number fourth category. God is gain. God is a God of justice. He is a judge. And in the same way, we partake in his work by serving as judges, lawyers, paralegals, legal secretaries, regulators, prison staff, diplomats, administrators, police officers. There is compassionate work, which is God's work of comforting and healing the broken. Many of us work in those fields as well, as doctors, nurses, paramedics, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, charity workers, community workers, paid and unpaid carers, and so on. And then finally, Banks says, there is revelatory work, the work of enlightening with truth. And many of us work that God does that, and many of us participate in that work as scientists, teachers, journalists, scholars, writers, researchers, and so on. 
And so God, having done all of those things and continuing to do all of those things, on the seventh day he rests and he looks at the work he's done and he says, that work, very, very good. Work is good. God is a worker. And you and I get to participate in God's work in a multitude of different ways. And as we do, to labour productively for the common good and for human flourishing. The work is good. Work's universal. Work is good. And if we're going to move with the grain of creation and God's purposes in creation, we need to work with the fact that work is universal and it's good. But we also need to work with the fact that it's hard. Verses 7 to 9 of 2 Thessalonians 3. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labour, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Work is hard. Imitate our example, Paul says. We work for our bread with toil and labour night and day. And even in that beautiful statement we read just now, do not grow weary in doing good. Do you see that statement shows us, doesn't it, that it is possible for something to be good and very wearying at the same time. Right? We might separate them and think good is not tiring, tiring is not good. But I, su- I suspect most of us already know that that's not the case. Like the most obvious example in my life and the life of probably many of us is parenting. Right? It is both the most tiring and wearying and the best thing that I get to do. And many of us would be able to engage with that. But you might not be a parent, but you'd say, actually, that's still true, right? How many times do you hear somebody say something like, that is the hardest thing I've ever done and the best? Or that was one of the most challenging days I've ever had and also one of the best, right? Almost all of our best achievements, developing a vaccine, sailing around the world, securing justice in a crucial case, climbing a mountain, building a house, felling a tree, winning Olympic gold or whatever it might be. All of the best of human achievements are incredibly hard and also incredibly good. And the fact that work is hard as well as good also goes right back to Genesis 1 to 3. Right? Genesis chapter 3, as a result of human sinfulness, work becomes hard. The women... The woman in the story will bear children in pain. The man in the story will battle thorns and thistles with the sweat of his brow and with blood and with tears. Work is a gift, but in a fallen world, it is often hard as well. And that challenges a third dangerous narrative in our world. I think it's probably the most dangerous one for many of us, which is that it's the myth of the perfect job. Right? If you can just find the perfect job, you will get to do whatever you want and get paid for it. Now, I know what people mean when they say that, and I, I love my job. Right? But that myth is very dangerous because it implies that if you just find the right job for you that fits you perfectly and matches your skills and preferences ideally, everything will be easy. And it's a lie. Most people in history knew very quickly that it was a lie because they had to get up in the morning and plant seeds and plough fields and till the ground whether they felt called to it or not, whether they felt like it suited their unique contribution to the world or not. They're like, we don't have a choice. We don't live in a post-industrial world where there's lots of career options. Everybody around here is a farmer and so therefore so am I. Right? So most people in history have known this and many in the world today still do. But in our generation, we can feel entitled to jobs that suit us because we've got a me-centered culture. So we think, well, I'm like this, and so I better find the job that perfectly fits the, my unique identity. 
Now, if you are working in a way that matches your skills really well, praise God, so am I, I hope. <laughs> Maybe you're better, better judges of that than I am, but I prefer being a teaching pastor to being an envelope stuffer. I've done both, I prefer this. But however perfect your job is, including mine, it will often be, as mine is, hard, draining, frustrating. And therefore Paul says, do your work quietly, earn your own living, and don't grow weary of doing good, because work is hard. We've got three myths in the culture, and this text confronts all three of them, and in doing so gives us what you might call a roadmap for vocational well-being. We've got to move with the grain of God's created purposes for work. That work is for all of us. It's universal. It is good, and it's also hard. But you know what? One day, it won't be hard. I look forward to that day so much. One day, work won't be hard. Because the day is coming, Romans 8 and many other passages tell us, when the curse will be lifted and creation, which is currently subject to futility, Paul says, bondage to decay, but creation is going to get liberated into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And on that day, you and I will enter into everlasting rest. That doesn't mean we won't work, actually. But it means that the work we do will be filled with abundance and peace and well-being and joy forever with no difficulty or pain. And work and rest, in a sense, will have become one and the same thing as they already are for God. St. Augustine, as he's concluding the city of God, many of you know, I quote Augustine a lot. Who can measure the happiness of heaven where there will be no weariness to call for rest, no need to call for toil, no place for any energy but praise. Function will be swallowed up in felicity, which means joy, in the perfect certainty of an untroubled everlastingness of joy. That's what's going to happen to you, to me, to the world. In the meantime, we work and we pray as Paul does in his sign-off to this letter, and it's a good sign-off actually to the series as a whole, we pray for peace, for shalom, for well-being as we wait and as we work. Let's pray with 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace, shalom, well-being, at all times, in every way. May the Lord be with you all, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.